Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today is episode number 409, Investing in Cybersecurity with Ken Gonzalez at Night Dragon. It used to be 15, 20 years ago, there was five or so countries around the world with stated offensive cybersecurity capabilities. Well, what we've seen over the last 15, 20 years is a true democratization of this, which is over 100 countries around the world have offensive cyber capabilities. There's been a real democratization here. So the, the, the number of adversaries has grown. Well, Ken is a absolute rock star. His career includes working at some of the most iconic brands in Silicon Valley, Siebel Systems, McAfee, Avast Software, FireEye, and now founding and running his own investment firm, Night Dragon. Here are six different things to keep an ear out for in this episode. First of all, why veterans should consider a career in cybersecurity and what the characteristics of this industry are. Second, what life is like as a mid to late stage investor. Third, the one thing everyone overlooks when it comes to networking. Fourth, using the lens of fun, learning, and money to evaluate career shifts. Fifth, why you should always take a job interview, even if you're happy at your current job. And sixth, an overview of the corporate development role, something we've never talked about on the show and something that Ken has specialized in at Siebel, McAfee, Avast, and more. As always at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes for this episode with links to everything we discuss, as well as 408 other episodes just like this, all provided for free. With that, let's dive into my conversation with Ken. Joining me today in Alameda, California, my guest is Ken Gonzalez. Ken, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Hey, uh, good morning, Justin. Thanks for having me today. Look forward to the discussion. So I want to give listeners a, a very abbreviated bio on Ken and special thanks to Bruce Cleveland from episode 405 for making the connection. Uh, Ken is the managing director of Night Dragon, which is investing in growth and late stage companies within the cybersecurity, safety, security, and privacy industries. He started out at West Point, after which he served in the Army for five years, serving in the 82nd Airborne, 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, and Joint Task Force Bravo and Honduras. After his military service, he earned his MBA at Harvard Business School and worked at companies including Siebel Systems, McAfee, Avast Software, FireEye, and ForgePoint Capital. And, and just as an aside for listeners, one of the things I most appreciate about Ken's background is, you know, extreme expertise in an operational capacity as well as in an investor capacity, which is rare to see those two. And you can see why Bruce introduced us if you listen to that episode. So first, Ken, let me just take a breath here and say anything to add to or amend to that bio? No, I think, uh, Jess, I think you nailed it there. Um, you know, one thing is to say is that, you know, in between my service, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but after serving in the military, I did go to business school. That was transformational for me in many ways. And that led to the rest of my career after that. Awesome. Let's start with where you're at today and we'll work backwards eventually. But if you were walking down the street in Alameda, you run into another army guy and he's like, so Ken, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that? Yeah. So I invest in cybersecurity, safety and privacy companies. So just to give a little commercial there. So I work for a firm. Uh, we invest in these companies. And what we're really trying to do is close the gap between offense and defense. Where is the offensive capability of nation states adversaries on the internet? 
And what are the capabilities of defenders? And we try to invest in companies that can help close that gap. And so, you know, we differentiate ourselves from other investors out there by being very deeply focused on this cybersecurity realm, having worked in multiple cybersecurity companies. And so having walked in the miles of many, you know, in the shoes for many miles of entrepreneurs that we're investing in. So that's what we do. And did you, were you one of the founders of Night Dragon as well? I am. My partner is a pretty known guy in the industry, a guy named Dave DeWalt, uh, who's the former CEO of McAfee and a former CEO of FireEye. So he and I have a 14-year working relationship. And uh, we launched Night Dragon as a firm about three and a half years ago. Get into your background, especially in corporate development. But what was it about cybersecurity and security and privacy? What got you excited about that to really focus and niche down on that? Well, I tell you, I'd like to say it was, uh, you know, all foresight, but in life, what I found is uh, luck happens and, but luck comes as a result of hard work and planning and effort to be clear. But what drew me to cybersecurity, yeah, might have been uh, recruiters recruiting me uh, into McAfee back in the day, but really what kept me in there and what is unique about this industry that we're in is that much like in the military, right? When we were all in the military, we worked for mission. We love our country. We love our constitution. We love our fellow, you know, soldiers, sailors, and airmen. The Marines in that case, and it was about the mission. And what I found over the years is that cybersecurity is one of the few industries where you combine both capitalism, hey, we're capitalists, we're America, we want to make money, but with that sense of mission. And it marries those two together into an industry that just uh, is it's just a dynamic industry that a lot of fun. And marrying that mission and money has, has been a consistent theme for me uh, since I joined McAfee back in 06. I love that. And one thing I'm realizing, I had to look this up while you were talking, I'm realizing 200 episodes ago, episode 213, I interviewed a lady, Lauren Burnell, who at the time was working at FireEye. And I think that that was the conversation that for me, this light bulb went off where I thought like, wow, cybersecurity in particular, I remember thinking, and correct me if this is, if you disagree with this, but I thought like, okay, first of all, mission driven, huge win for veterans, like purpose, like very much a sense of kind of good versus evil. There's a lot there that's valuable, but also a space that is relatively new. So if someone's leaving from the military, it's not like they have people with 50 years of experience in this industry they're competing with. So there's an appeal there of like, oh, join an industry that's still growing and has room for growth. And I'm curious if you agree with that assessment that this is an industry that might be appealing to a lot of uh, veterans. Well, uh, there's a few different takes on that. So first of all, to directly answer that question, yes, there is a lot of former military veterans within the cybersecurity industry because of that draw of mission and the draw of capitalism. Also because, frankly, the the military does have and uh, has very large cybersecurity communities that have grown up over the last 10 to 15 years. To your point, it is a relatively, uh, I wouldn't call it a nascent industry. I mean, we're well over $100 billion a year in annual sales. And I'll talk more about the industry characteristics in a second. But there is absolutely a talent and skill shortage there. There's not enough people that are trained in the domain. And therefore, companies, uh, both uh, companies that are defending themselves, right, I'm a a bank, as well as companies that are in the cybersecurity industry, them selling technology to protect others. Both of those kinds of organizations, customers and vendors, uh, have a talent shortage. There's a massive talent shortage globally and specifically within the U.S. of people. And so they're willing to take people that have high aptitude, high uh, desire, and train and invest in them to grow them in their career. So it is an interesting place as a career. You can get post-high school education, like trade school, if you will, in cybersecurity. There are courses that are available to give you a foundation to make you appeal to those people and to show demonstrated interest at the, before joining 
either a firm to defend themselves or a vendor within this industry. That's great. And and I want to double click on, you had talked about the industry characteristics. What what does that look like for these industries? Oh, it, it so the cybersecurity industry as a whole is an amazing growth market. And why is that? We are, we, we talk about it here at Night Dragon, that we are in a perfect storm of opportunity here. So just to kind of hear me out a little bit. So it used to be 15, 20 years ago, there was five or so countries around the world with stated offensive cybersecurity capabilities. Well, what we've seen over the last 15, 20 years is a true democratization of this, which is over 100 countries around the world have offensive cyber capabilities. There's been a real democratization here. So the, the, the number of adversaries has grown. We've seen criminal organizations that used to you know, basically steal stuff and fence it have full-grown R&D operations. So take the Eastern European ransomware gangs. These guys are, they're very skilled. They have huge R&D budget. They have customer services organizations that help you buy a Bitcoin to pay off the ransomware. So the adversaries, both nation state and criminal, have grown tremendously. Meanwhile, we've seen a rise of connectivity, right? Right now on my router, which is right behind my monitor, I've got 28 or so devices that are connected to it. I've got three kids in my family. And so every home in America has got, you know, maybe not 28, but they might have five or six. So we are more connected than ever. We are more vulnerable as a nation than ever because of that connectivity. And if you look at the business realm, the same thing happens there. There are more PCs than there were 20 years ago. There are more mobile internet connected devices than there were 20 years ago. There was no such thing as an IoT device and now they're everywhere within networks. And so we've seen a massive reliance on the internet and connectivity. Well, the last part of this story I would say is the rise of anonymity, right? The table stakes to get into this game are very low if you're a criminal. I can use a Tor browser, I can get on the dark web and I can set up my own ransomware franchise using someone else's infrastructure to attack and hold people ransom or uses someone infrastructure to an, launch an attack on a company. And when I succeed in breaking through, this remains all anonymous via the rise of cryptocurrency, which didn't exist 15 years ago. So now I can steal things. I can go on the dark web. I can sell it for crypto and it's all anonymous. No one knows that I'm doing this. And this is the perfect storm of opportunity that has created a challenge for countries and countries, companies and individuals around the world trying to keep these adversaries from stealing their personal information or their intellectual property, or whatever. So it's a gift that keeps on giving in many ways. It's an amazing industry as a result of very dynamic and you know innovative. You know, as you describe this, I just feel the parts of me, you know, there's like so much terror at like, these are like incredibly realistic threats to every business. So there's that fear there. But I think the part of me that was the built up in the military, like the protector part of me is like, I I can see why so many veterans would love this space because there is this sense of almost good versus evil and defending those who cannot defend themselves. And just the fairness of like the thought of the anonymity. It's like, oh, yeah. Justin, just think through the, just in the the last 12 months, the amount of attacks we've seen has been off the charts. And one that that touched many of our, hopefully, listeners on the East Coast was the Colonial Pipeline attack. This was a ransomware attack by an Eastern European criminal organization holding the Colonial Pipeline company hostage and not letting fuel ship up and down the East Coast. And the result was airplanes weren't flying, cars weren't driving, lines were building up. Somebody across the world reached out and touched America, caused harm. And that's what we're dealing with. It's, it's scary in many ways. Your title's managing director. I'd love to paint the picture of what your day-to-day looks like. And especially because you talk about you're an investor and an advisor for the companies that you work with. So walk us through, you know, a typical day or typical week. What are the sorts of activities that you're doing? 
Yeah, so it really breaks down into three areas, I'd say, right? One is, uh, as one of the co-founders of the firm and the three partners of the firm, uh, a chunk of my business is managing the firm, right? Hiring and retaining talent, uh, devising strategy, doing back office things, uh, fundraising documents since we're, you know, we're an investment firm, compliance. These are, that's part of the job, right? A second part of the job is finding interesting investing opportunities and doing diligence on them and closing them. And so finding is everything from marketing to networking to doing primary research or having a team do research, getting an introduction or reaching out and touching the entrepreneur and then convincing them that our money is better than the next guy's money oftentimes, and then doing the diligence and doing the investment. So that's kind of job two, finding and closing investments. And then the third large chunk of time is driving value. You know, we are not uh, passive financial investors. We do not write a check into a company and hope it turns into something. We leverage the full weight of our firm, the programs that we've set up for the benefit of our portfolio companies. And I can talk about those if you care to hear those, but we've built a lot of infrastructure to really help our portfolio companies out. So I spent a lot of time helping on portfolio company strategy, hiring, finding the right partners, developing partnerships for portfolio companies and helping them find customers. So that's roughly how my uh, day you know, spans those three domains. It's interesting. And we'll dig in in detail to your, your history here in a second. But just from someone who's done LinkedIn stocking, I'm just kind of putting your story together. I'm like, okay, McAfee, everyone thinks of that as like virus protection. That was like one of the originals that was the original, right? Like when I first got a PC in the nineties, that was like the software we were using to protect it. So I'm like, okay, that tracks here. You've got FireEye, you've got cybersecurity experience. So when I'm just looking at those three buckets, I see the, you know, maybe that your corp dev experience that you have a lot of plays a big role in that second bucket of evaluating opportunities and finding these people to invest in. I see that the third bucket coming from McAfee and FireEye, where you're driving value, you have subject matter expertise. And then, you know, you've got a lot of strategy in your history as well, affecting bucket number one. So I'm just kind of curious, like from your lens, do you look at it in that way of like having had the building blocks in a 20 year career to credibly say, I can actually do all three of these to an incredible degree of depth. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, sometimes it's nice to say I had a master plan. This is how I planned my career. And I don't know about you, Justin, but I didn't have that foresight, right? I was going to be in the army for 20 plus years, but I always was a, a you know a relatively type A kind of person. I always knew what my next objective were. And I was also always willing to learn about new things. And when you start learning about new things and you start putting together plans, these things stack up over time. And so, yeah, kind of what you said, I've I've done my military time. I went to business school. I learned skills across each role in my career that kind of led up to this perfect opportunity for me, which was invest and advise in companies and leverage my domain expertise to make them successful. That's great. It's I mean, it's pretty rare, you know, 410 episodes in. It's kind of rare to see the culmination of a career that at least externally just it appears to perfectly blend your background, which is is kind of uh, from an efficiency standpoint, it's like, wow, there wasn't really much fat to trim there. You, you really, really capitalized in. I'm also aware that you're, I believe the first person we've had on the show who has done corporate development work and you've done it in a variety of capacities. Let me just, I'm just switching over to your LinkedIn profile here where that was in Siebel Systems, Vice President Corporate Development. At McAfee, you were a Senior Vice President of Corporate Development. 
at FireEye, you were Senior Vice President of Corporate Development and Global Alliances. So you've had that play a big role in the work that you've done. Take the listeners through, like, what does that mean? What sort of activities were you doing? What skill set were you honing in that capacity? Sure. So, okay, it's a little bit of a journey here, but so let's define what corporate development is, right? So corporate development is corporate mergers and acquisitions using the company's balance sheet or stock to buy companies, right? So corporate M&A integration, making it work once you bought it. And it also includes corporate investments. Let me talk about business development. Business development is partnerships. It's not using your, your equity or your cash to form partnerships, right? So this could be technology alliances, resells, OEMs, white labels, distribution deals. That's what alliances are. I started off in that world and we just hired a new head of corporate development and I came in and I said, hey, I don't know anything about M&A other than what I learned in business school. But I tell you what, I know a lot about operations, leveraging my military background. You show me how to buy companies, I'll make them work on the back end. I will lead, define and lead the integration efforts. So that was my pitch on how I got into it. So that was not luck. That was something I pursued, but then luck took over. Later on, my boss uh, was asked to run global sales for Siebel Systems. And I'm looking around and there's a saying in the army, you know, like when in charge, take charge. And I just said, I looked around, I said, well, I'm in charge here. So I'm running corporate development now, right? And so then I became the vice president of corporate development. So uh, to get to your question, I think it was kind of what does corporate development entail? It entails, uh, you know, working with senior leadership in the company to understand either devise or inherit uh, the strategy of the company. And then what you do is you look for how do I, what are the organic capabilities? If we run our play, what can we do as a company? And then what's the gap between what we can do and what we want to do to execute on that strategy? And that gap gets closed in a number of ways, right? We can raise more capital and so we can increase our capacity to do things. We can buy a company because, or actually before, before I go to buy a company, we can do a partnership. Hey, we don't need to own this thing, but here, this partnership, this alliance can help us get to the next level against that strategy. And that's where I started my career. And then the third thing is, listen, we can't do it ourselves. There's no way to partner our way through this. We need to own it. And that's where corporate development is. So corporate development is starts with strategy, identifying the gaps that need to be closed, identifying the ones that need to be owned, and then executing a mergers and acquisition strategy to close that gap. And that merger and acquisition strategy involves becoming a domain expertise in the problems you're trying to solve, a domain expert, talking with lots of companies and investors and management teams, and figuring out which is the one or two or three companies that best help you close that gap. And then it's a little bit of a selling process, which is why you, the target, should have a discussion with us and why we're the great long-term partner and how our visions are consistent with each other. We're not going to make you do a student body left by coming here. So there's an alignment and a sailing process, but there's also a deep diligence process to make sure that we know what we're getting into before we bring these companies together. So that's the transactional part of it. And then on the back end, it's the execution of those integration plans to actually achieve the vision that you set out when you promise your shareholders, hey, we're going to do this and it's going to be great. I love that description. I don't think I've ever thought of it in the light of the relationship of to corporate development, but I like that distinction of like it's a similar activity, but forging relationships in different ways. And I like that explanation. One thing that I'm curious about is to give listeners a sense of the optics here, just roughly speaking, let's start with corp dev, but I'd love to hear on the investing side as well. How many companies did you evaluate in? And then how many did you end up doing a corp dev deal with just to give people a sense of like the volume of activity and the results there. And then similarly, in your work in a variety of casties investing, how many 
deals are you looking at companies at and then actually go through and make a deal? I'm always curious about those numbers. Yeah, the ratio, I don't know if I have the the ratios for you. And it's probably very similar across both. Um, I mean, when you're a a publicly traded company that has a bunch of cash on its balance sheet and a, a valuable stock, things are landing on your door every single day. So whether that is something you evaluate or not, I don't know if that should be in the denominator, but you, you see plenty of those. A good corporate development professional knows exactly what gaps are trying to solve in strategy and gets to know those companies. Companies get into trouble when they buy something out of left field that was not, they didn't, they weren't looking for it. If, you, if somebody shows up and says, hey, I got something for you, run away. Don't do that deal. It needs to be consistent with what you're trying to do. So within that, what you're focused on, you know, the gap you're trying to close, depending on what that thing is and how big the market, there could be two companies that are relevant to it, or there could be seven companies that are relevant to it. If it's 20 companies, then it's probably commodity and you probably don't need to own it. So for any given thing, it's, you know, you're probably looking between five and 10 companies that are, are relevant. And then you, you go through your process and you might ultimately get to the end and say, listen, none of these work. We're not doing it. Or it might result in a, an acquisition. On the investing side, again, we, we get investment opportunities every single day. There's no shortage of opportunities given the breadth of our network and our domain focus. But I would say at any point in time, there's kind of you know 20 or so companies on our radar that were in various points of d- discussions, many of which we'll never get to, but two or three that we're really interested in and hopefully we can get to terms with at any point in time. I know a lot of our listeners are either entrepreneurs or aspire to be entrepreneurs one day. What is your sense of the deals that you've done? How many of them were you having your thesis and looking at the landscape and pursuing someone versus like, have any of them come from people pursuing you? Have any of them been inbound of people reaching out to you? Or is it always more the case that you're finding these companies and pursuing them? So I'd say on the corporate development side, the M&A side, while there's always a potential that some company or some banker is going to show up with an interesting idea, I'd be hard pressed to think of one that I, I, and I've done 43 acquisitions in my career, one that just came out of left field and said, I got to have this. It starts with, again, what gap am I trying to fill? Who are the companies that are relevant? And I better know them better than any banker should, right? What's going to solve my problem. The investing world is, is different, right? So we're very thematic driven investors. We have 10 themes that we invest under here at Night Dragon. They are not ephemeral in nature. We might demote one and promote one per year, but it's not like whole scale turnover because we need to invest in ideas that will last for, you know, five, 10, 15 years, right? We're long-term investors. So we have these 10 themes that we invest in and we're actively looking in those each of those themes, but there will be companies that we've never heard of that are consistent with those themes. So if something comes out of left field, it's consistent with one of those 10 themes, I'm looking at it. And we have had investments that have been just like that. We, through being having our eyes open, being aware that we want to invest in an area, and all of a sudden something shows up that that is then moved to our through our process and ultimately became an investment. But generally speaking, you know, it's pretty we're we're looking more than things are just showing up out of left field, that's for sure. I just really admire though the framing of the market. Like you're having your thesis, you have your 10, I don't know what you'd call them buckets, but I like that deliberateness and one question we get a lot on the show is to MBA or not MBA. And as you look back, you know, like me, the MBA served as a transition period. It kind of, I'm imagining was a reorientation for you of what you wanted to do afterwards. What advice do you have for someone on, let's say, active duty 
and they're considering going directly to industry versus getting an MBA, how might you view the the pros and cons or the ways that it's helped you in your own career? Yeah, Justin, meaty, meaty subject here. So for me, no brainer, do the MBA. It was completely transformational. But let me give you the lens that I came at this from, right? It's not for everybody, but for me, no brainer. I do it 100 times over. It's a bet on yourself. It's expensive, but it's a bet on yourself. And that's the best kind of bet you can make. So my lens is this. My father was an infantry officer. I was born in Fort Benning, Georgia. I was an infantry officer. That's what my family knew, right? I love my dad. I love my life in the army, but that's what I knew. And when I was getting out, I was in the first ranger battalion, just getting ready to leave. And I was trying to decide what am I going to do next? And uh, I love the army and a good chunk of me wanted to stay in the army. But I, I had a friend of mine who was going to Harvard Business School. It was a few years ahead of me at West Point. When I was coming in, he was coming out of the rangers. You know, I asked him, I said, he's going to Harvard Business School. I said, how did you come across that decision? Like, why not stay in? Why not go to med school? Why not go to law school? Why not whatever, right? Go to industry. And I just, I'm not going to share all his answers, but, you know, he left me with some insights coming out of that. And so when it was my turn, time to transition, I really gravitated to business school because I didn't know I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. I didn't know what kind of company I wanted to go to. And I just wanted to go learn. And what was beautiful about going to business school was that having been an army guy, my father was an army guy, it opened my eyes, right? Day one, I'm in a classroom with people who have not walked a mile in my shoes, and I haven't walked a mile in their shoes either. So I'm sitting next to a Stanford uh, baseball player who went to banking and is now in business school. And I sat next to a guy from GE who used to build you know, light bulbs or whatever, or a guy from GM who worked for GM in Brazil building cars. So the wealth of experiences I got opened my eyes to what are the industries out there? What are people doing? Is that What are the careers that I never even knew existed? So for me, it was transformational and it allowed me to paint my, to learn, but also allowed me to paint myself in a different picture, right? I'm not army guy. I'm now Ken Gonzalez, army guy, plus an MBA. And the story on the army is great operational experience. Like you drop me in a situation, I can get stuff done. But now I've got a professional lens of experiences across, you know, sales and marketing and finance and strategy and HR and all that kind of stuff that uh, were a set of tools that I could leverage for the rest of my career. So I don't know if I answered the question, but for me, it was the right thing to do. That's great. Similar question. As you look back on like a very successful career, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what are the attributes or assets that came from your experience in the military that helped you succeed? But I feel like equally important is the reflection on what were the liabilities or the things that you had to unlearn or the things that you had to change? Because I think that that's good for listeners to be aware that, yes, they're bringing value to the table, but also there may be some rewiring that needs to occur. And I don't know if that's management or whatever their approach is. Yeah, I should probably ask you the same question, Justin, but let's say, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the pros, right? So, um you know, and I, this is true. Like, I think military folks get a lot of responsibility at a young age, right? So I rolled into business school, you know, having led a lot of people from all over America with a diversity of backgrounds and experiences from every socioeconomic group imaginable. Whereas my classmates in business school and certainly folks in the industry didn't have that wealth of experiences. So leadership of a diverse group of people is certainly something that my classmates in business school did not know anything about. And some people, only senior people in industry have done have, after they've kind of grown up. So we as former military folks have been put through a lot of responsibility from a leadership perspective early. That's definitely an attribute. I would say the process orientation and the logic is another thing that whether you're enlisted or an officer, you also get plenty of, right? One thing, I'm going back to my schooling days, but one thing, one ding against the old Soviet Union is that 
junior officers and enlisted people were given no responsibility. They were literally all the brains were at the top and everyone was sort of an automaton. The U.S. military and all its flavors uh, really pushes decision making and authority down as far as you can. So the, the practical application of knowledge and defining objectives and leading people through that is something that's very unique, that skill set I think that comes out of the military. As far as liabilities go, I will tell you, I don't think there's a lot of liabilities, but there's more of a perception liability, right? So there are people in my career that are just the army guy. Like I'm, I'm an army guy, but I, you know what I'm saying? They're still one foot in the door. They're using the lingo. They've got their hair cut shorter than me. And it's like, come on, you need to move forward, right? So so there's a stereotype that that, I don't think that's a negative thing, but it's a little stereotype. Like, okay, this guy might not fit in our culture because he's army guy. You know, so move forward, right? Be- become a civilian, right? Value those experiences, but become a civilian. You can leave your military jargon and language behind, move forward, talk the language of your new culture and your new company that you're joining. The other you know, stereotype might be kind of rigid, less creative, if you will. And I, I don't think that's true. I think you just got to fight that. And, and the way to do that is just through action, right? Taking leadership, being innovative and doing good things. So I don't think there's a lot of baggage. It's just, just avoid being the military guy. Like that's not who you are right? That's part of who you are. I think that's a great answer. And I, I, um, I do know those people where it just, it continues to form the majority of their identity rather than one, one facet of that. And I think it's different, you know, if someone has a 20 or 30 year career, I would expect that to be a larger component of their identity. But for most of our listeners who I think aspire to have a very different career, to me, that's a sign of growth. You know, if I see your profile photo on LinkedIn and you're in a uniform and you're two years out of the military, or there's, you know, heavily laden in U.S. flags, like I appreciate that. But it also, to me, seems like you haven't evolved or matured or grown to incorporate those new experiences of the job that you've sought. One thing I wanted to ask you about, Ken, is this question of when to move on. And I'm thinking of listeners who are already out of the military in particular and might be in a job. And there's the question of like, at what point do you start looking for something else? And I, and I guess that applies to listeners who are on active duty as well. But you've worked at such incredible companies and you worked there for a while. I'm just, again, looking back at your profile where with Siebel Systems nearly eight years and McAfee almost six years, and you've had long tenures, FireEye almost five years. I imagine the circumstances were different but how do you abstract out the thinking of like when to stay and grow and when to switch to something else? All right. Meaty question here, Justin. So I've, I've actually wrote, took notes. I'm going to kind of wrote down the three <laughs> things I said. So yep. first of all, the first thing is, is what is your professional lens? Always have a series of lenses that you work on. And for me professionally, outside of my family, but professionally, my three lenses are fun, learning and money. Right. And they all got to come into harmony. I can dial down one for some amount of time. I don't know if it's six months or a year, but they all got to come back in balance. I had a job one year in my life at Siebel Systems. Bruce, if you're listening, I won't share any specifics. But one year in my life was pain. Yeah, I was learning a ton and I was doing fine economically, but I had, it was like, or actually I was learning and I was learning and, and making money. No fun. No fun for a year. Worst year of my life professionally. They got to come back into harmony. So whenever you see a situation where you can't get that back into harmony, at least for me, I got to go. Now, fortunately, that that um, while those lenses have been played are, are important to me, that's not really how it played out for me because I've always managed to put myself in the places where I could get that harmony. Um, so that's 
anyway, have a, have a framework that you work with. That's mine, fun learning and money. Uh, the second thing I'd say is be careful out there, employers, but always interview, right? So someone's going to reach out to you someday on LinkedIn and say, hey, you know, Justin, I got this company, you know, whatever, we're looking at a headhunter or whatever, looking, take the call, do the interview. Because if you don't interview, you don't know what's out there. You don't know how valuable you are. Uh, and you don't know if you can have more fun, more learning or more money somewhere else. And if you don't interview, you get stale. The more you interview, the better you get at selling yourself. The less you interview, the staler you go. So if you interview once every 10 years, you're going to be horrible. So it's not being disloyal. Uh, it's We've evolved as an employer-employee relationship over the years. It used to be that your father would work for Ford and he worked there for 40 years and he'd retire with a pension. It's different now, right? We have to look out for ourselves. So job one is take care of yourself and your family. That's what you got to do. And if that means periodically testing the market on fun learning and money and interviewing, you should do that. I encourage you to do that. Be you know covert about it. Don't do it during office hours. That's not your loyalty. It's to your employer. But stay fresh. Know what's out there. Take the call. Learn. Okay? And you might ultimately say, not right for me. But you've learned something. I can't even tell you how many interviews I've done over the years, despite my career in the companies that I've been in, right? And being happy in the role, to be honest with you. The third thing I'd say, and my last little nugget here on this is, don't be a job hopper. You talked about my tenure, Justin, in the jobs, and I see a job hopper a mile away. When I hire somebody, I look, if I see the last three companies they've been in, they've been in nine months, a year, a year and a half in each job, I'm moving on because I'm not going to take the time to train you only to know that you're going to be leaving me in 18 months. I will not do that. So everyone gets a mulligan, right? There can be some short stint where you were in a company for nine months or a year. Hey, we make mistakes, right? It was a bad fit, whatever. But if I see serial short stints on a resume, I'm not talking to you. So uh, have your lens, you know, interview frequently. Don't job hop. That's my, my thoughts on that. That's so exceptional. I want to break that down because I love that lens. I think I'm going to co-opt that, the fun, learning, and money. And I think that those, for most of us who want to thrive and continuously grow, you do need all three of those components. And I also like that caveat that, you know, in periods and chapters that might be out of balance, but in the long term, you can't really have that balance out there. I think two is so exceptional, this always interview thought. And I don't think we've had that advice on the show. And one reason why I really want to underscore and highlight that is that I, my, my, my story, my belief, right or wrong, is that veterans to a fault show loyalty and they may not want to take that interview out of a sense that it's it's in some way betraying a trust. But to me, what I like what you said about that is knowing how valuable you are, knowing what's out there. And as an employer myself, I don't want people to be with me just out of loyalty. Like I want it to be moment to moment a good experience. And so if they're blindly following me, that doesn't do me, the organization, any good. If, but if they are seeing what's out there and realizing that this is where they want to be, that's great. They're opting in continuously to work with me. So I love that. And by the way, that's loyalty to yourself and loyalty to your family. That to me trumps loyalty to your employer. And I feel like, you know, I just want to say it. I feel like sometimes in the military, we are sometimes rewarded for having loyalty to our organization, Trump loyalty to ourself or to our family. And that might not be everyone's experience, but I just want to say that I, my hope for everyone listening is that as you transition out, that you do prioritize yourself and your family's needs and advocate for that above all else. And that's, you know, good things tend to follow from that. One thing I always like to ask about is resources and particularly thinking about the person who's deployed overseas or on a boat or wanting to read a book or listen to a podcast or watch a conference that's going to benefit them. What has influenced your career that you would recommend, whether it's a book or other form of media? 
Ooh, I don't know if I have an answer on that one. I, one thing I will say, I, the military was always great about education. You know, I was in, you know, before broad use of the internet, <laughs> but I, they always made education available. Uh, when I took my GMAT test to get into business school, they flew a proctor from Miami down to Honduras. I'm in a hut in Honduras on stilts and screens for window, and they gave me a GMAT test, you know, a hut in Honduras. So the Army's always, and the military has always been great about providing resources. I don't know if I have a, a great answer in terms of what resources for me. The best resources have been people who have gone ahead of me, uh, right, who I can learn from. Reading books, reading magazines, and or now online, no particular blog or anything like that that I would reference. But just, you know, try and get as smart as you can. Take the time to read a few books per year. I don't read voraciously, but I read three or four books per year that try to matter that are usually around my career, not, not career coaching books, but industry books, things that make me better at what I do, be it business or cybersecurity or something else. That, that's pretty much what I'd say, Justin. That's great. And one last question I had was, I'm remembering you're saying about with Dave, how you had worked before together and now you're working together again at, at Night Dragon. To me, it's a reminder of the importance of your network and keeping that network alive. Do you have any advice, especially the breadth of your network is really astounding. Any advice for how you keep that network alive in a way that feels authentic and feels good to you. Yeah, boy, I got a few thoughts on that. First first piece of advice, and I'll tell you about keeping it alive, is I've got a great network and a lot of valuable friends and professional colleagues I work with. One area that I felt like I'm under-networked is I can hardly name a professor from college and a professor from business school. And that's one thing if I had to do that whole journey over again is build relationships with not just uh, your professional colleagues, but education. So if you have professors, build a relationship, know who they are and build a relationship there. As far as networking goes, business partnerships, alliances, they always have to have a balance in the equation. It can't be one way. So a relationship that is just me asking you, asking you, asking you, asking you for things and not returning something, uh, I might value highly, but you're not. So the important to making a good network work is be a resource where you can be a resource and then consume where you need to consume. It's just kind of trying to find that balance. Now, certainly that advice is a little bit harder when uh, when your network is more senior, right? Has been out of the military for longer, is higher up in the company. In that case, yeah, I'm, I'm realistic, right? You're going to learn more. And that's more of a uh, mentor-mentee relationship as opposed to a peer network. And that's okay. Find a couple mentors in your journey that you can learn from. That could be a coach. You know, and value and build those relationships. Awesome. Well, I always like to keep the last question open-ended and you can take it one of two ways. One is just, you know, I've had my list of questions I wanted to get through. I'm sure there's things I didn't ask about that you would want to share. So if there's anything unsaid, definitely want to make space for that. Or just what's some final words of wisdom you'd like to leave with listeners before we wrap up? Oh man, Justin, come on. You should, you should have told me these questions. Justin didn't tell me any of these questions before, so I've been pretty good. This is one I don't have an answer for you. I think we've covered it all, you know? Love what you do. Don't, don't do something you don't yeah. love doing. That comes to the fun part of it, man. You got to keep fun and happy and you got to be learning because uh, it's tough if you're not doing that. I love that. Well, I appreciate your advice and I appreciate your example too of just you know, sticking with different companies, really learning and growing and building into something really incredible with what you're doing with Night Dragon. And, you know, for listeners in 410 interviews, I know how rare 
Ken's breed is. There are not a lot of people in the military that go on to become an investor and advisor, and it is hard-fought real estate. And so I just want to really recognize Ken for achieving what so many people aspire to do. And as always at beyondtheuniform.org, in the show notes, I'll have links to everything about Ken, his company, and you can you can follow them as well. Uh, so thank you so much for your time today, Ken. Yeah, right on, Justin. Thank you very much. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our chief of staff, Steve Bain, our editor, Lex Brown, and our head of social media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.